Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Natasha Crane on helping us regain biblical clarity in a secular culture. Basically, secularism comes down to this. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. In other words, no one has any kind of objective basis for having a confidence about who this God might be. Natasha Crane, next. Blogger and podcaster Natasha Crane believes as the mainstream culture drifts ever further away from biblical truths, Christians will face ever-increasing pressure to change or even abandon their beliefs. The good news, she says, is these challenges actually provide opportunities to reveal the gospel's light to those around us. Natasha Crane is author of the new book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Natasha, just to lay a bit of a foundation, tell us what's behind the writing of this book. For the last 10 years or so, I have been really focused on writing for parents, especially. So equipping parents with an understanding of how to make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity with their kids. So that is kind of, that's been my focus for a very long time. But during all the unrest that was happening socially in 2020, I started looking around and seeing that there were a lot of secular ideas that were starting to creep in to the thinking and the believing of a lot of Christians. And so even though I had been really focused on parents before that, I decided I was going to write a blog post about five ways Christians are getting swept into a secular worldview in this cultural moment. So I wrote this blog post, one of the first that stepped away from parenting specifically, and this post went viral. It was liked and shared over 277,000 times. And I was receiving emails for weeks from people who were just saying, thank you for putting your finger on something that I was seeing, but couldn't really figure out myself what's going on right now with all these social movements and social justice and the things that we were seeing. And so I decided I was going to write more on this subject. So long story short, I started writing more blog posts and articles about what was going on and how secularism was being mixed with the biblical worldview. And they were just getting shared like crazy. And I realized that Christians were really looking for some help in terms of thinking about the difference between the secularism as a worldview and their biblical worldview. So that's really what Faithfully Different is all about. It's about regaining biblical clarity in a very secular culture to really help Christians understand what is a biblical worldview? What does that mean? What is a secular worldview? And how do we go about keeping those divided, both for the sake of our own faith with the Lord, as well as our ability to be salt and light for others? For some people, this will be review. For others, it might be a new term. But what is a biblical worldview and if, if I could make a compound question out of it, what is a secular worldview? And can you sort of contrast those for us? Sometimes these terms get thrown around so much that we don't stop to actually define them. But a worldview is basically how a person sees all of reality. So it's this whole concept of what are your answers to the big questions of life? Questions like, who are we as people? Why are we here? Is there an objective purpose for our existence? Is there any kind of objective meaning? What happens after we die? Is there a God? These big questions, when you answer them collectively, that gives you a worldview. It's sort of like glass that you put on and it's mm -hmm. how you see all of reality. 
So people, every single person alive has a worldview, whether they've really thought deeply about it or they've come to it consciously or not. We all have a worldview. The question is, what is your worldview? So from a biblical perspective, when we're talking about a worldview, does your worldview line up with what the Bible actually teaches? And people might define biblical worldview in all kinds of ways, but I'm just looking at it from exactly that terminology. Does your worldview line up with the truth that's taught in the Bible? Your answers to basic questions about who God is, who we are, and what is our relationship? That would be a simple way of defining it. Of course, it goes a little bit further than that. On the other hand, a secular worldview, this is really interesting, and I go into depth in this in the book, but secularism is sort of an umbrella way of looking at the very diverse views that people have in society, but that they have this tie that functionally binds them all together. And the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people is that their authority for knowing what's true about reality, what's good, bad, right, and wrong is the self. So in a biblical worldview, our authority is God, and he has revealed himself in these instructions in the Bible. So the Bible is our inspired and authoritative word of God. So our authority is outside of ourself. But for millions of other people, the authority is the individual. And that is a fundamental difference that makes us fundamentally at odds, really, between a secular worldview and culture and a biblical worldview that we should have as Christians. Your book is titled Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. In one sense, is this kind of pressure from the culture, from the from the world, if you will? It's always been on believers. I'm just right. I'm I'm thinking of Romans twelve, do not be conformed to this world and so on. So in one sense, this is this has been a challenge, a uh, a battle that Christians have had to fight uh through the ages. Absolutely. That is 100% the case. It's never been the expectation that everyone is going to be Christians and culture. In, in John 15, Jesus talks about how the world will hate us. So obviously we should have the expectation in mind that we are going to be different, that we are going to have to be faithfully different than the culture around us. That is absolutely the case. But it does look like things are changing rapidly in our particular culture. It, over the past 25 years, the percent of people, according to researchers, who hold to a biblical worldview has decreased by half, by 50% in just 25 mm. years. So we, as a, as a group of people who have a biblical worldview, who seek to have that worldview, we are a shrinking minority. And that's going to have a lot of implications for us. There are going to be these pressures on what we believe and how we think and how we live out our faith. And so that's really what the book gets back to is saying, yes, it, it, we're not looking to make it more normal or something to be a Christian culture. Jesus told us that's not going to be the case, but we need to know how can we be more faithful to our calling as Christians in a culture where it will never be normal to follow Jesus. What would you say, Natasha, are the, and of course your book is divided up into believing, thinking, and living in terms of uh, the Christian life, the Christian worldview, and and really resisting the secular pressures, but I'm wondering to kind of set the uh, the stage uh, to get into that aspect, the the major pressures of culture today on believers. Where where, where do you see that? 
Well, like you said, the believing, thinking, and living, those are all different pressures that we encounter. And I think a lot of times Christians skip straight to the living. It's all about how we live out our faith. But if we don't have an accurate understanding of what our beliefs should be in order to line up with what the Bible teaches, then we're never going to be able to think biblically and live biblically. So going back to just the believing part of this, Mm -hmm. a couple of the major pressures that I talk about in the book, number one is sort of this bias toward a natural naturalism, which is the idea that there's nothing more than the natural world. There's certainly no supernatural being out there who cares about us and who and who we should be interacting with. That's kind of the idea. But a lot of times, even Christians, we live sort of as functional atheists. Hmm. We might say that we believe in God, but we go on our day-to-day way without thinking too much about it. We become prayerless. We don't read our Bibles. So we can really give into that pressure around us of people living as if there's no God. God, even when we're Christians, and it becomes this very private thing that it's like, yeah, I, I intellectually believe that, but we're not actually internalizing what it means to have an active relationship with the Lord. So that's that's one kind of believing pressure. Another one that I talk about in the, on the believing section is about progressive Christianity. And progressive Christianity is basically this idea that the Bible is not the inspired and authoritative word of God for all time with these eternal truths that we should adhere to if we want to go with what God says. But instead, the Bible is this kind of this helpful book, people's best ideas about God over time, but we're still evolving in our understanding. And so this is really, and I make this case in the book, this is really just another secular pressure coming from people who call themselves Christians, because ultimately that pressure is to revert to the authority of the self once again, that I'm the arbiter of truth. I'm going to be the one who's going to pick and choose from the Bible what I believe to be true. And when we start taking that on as Christians and we start thinking, okay, I'm going to you know, toss out this belief and take this belief, that's a pressure also on what we believe that can affect us all the way through that chain of thinking and, and living. And in terms of progressive Christianity, um, Natasha, and I know that Lisa Childers has written a book really taking a look at that uh, in a very in-depth way, but is that sort of a form of Christianity that has been, uh, at least in the context of our conversation here, somewhat, well, greatly influenced by secularism? Absolutely, because like I said, ultimately, the authority of the self is the spirit of the age today. It's I am the one who is going to decide what's true about the nature of reality. So if I go to the Bible and I say, huh, I I don't really, this sounds a little, you know, ancient, or I don't really like the way that this sounds. I don't think that this is sinful. And, you know, I'm kind of going with culture says. Ultimately, what you're saying to God is, I don't believe that this is actually your word for all time. I believe that I'm going to be the person who's in the seat of judgment about that, and I'm going to decide what's true for me. So that's very much a secularized kind of faith. And that's why you see that a lot of progressive Christian churches look very much like the rest of the culture around us that has no religious type of faith. You know, you see them advocating for the same causes as a completely purely secular culture. So I I say in the book that ultimately progressive Christianity, progressive Christians may have a bit more appreciation for Jesus and, and talk about Jesus, but ultimately how they think and how they live out their faith looks exactly like culture because they're starting with beliefs that don't line up with the Word of God. That's why that belief portion is so important. And and I suppose, and and perhaps you've explained this to some extent already, but why understanding a biblical worldview and living a biblical worldview is so important, and and, and why, if you take a look at the percentage of people, I think you said it's something like 65% 
of people in the United States say they believe in Jesus, but when you compare that to those that actually hold to a biblical ver- worldview across uh, how they live their life, you can see why uh, perhaps the culture is influenced so little by, uh, by Christians. Right. If, uh, if you look at the surveys, especially coming out of the Pew Forum, they're really widely known for tracking these trends over time. And they do this religious landscape study with thousands and thousands of people. So these are large studies, not just some small thing in the corner of the internet. Uh, but they find that if you ask people, how do you identify atheist, agnostic, Jewish, Mormon, Christian, whatever it may be, 65% of people say, Christian. That's mm. the box that they will check. But that is just based on their own identification. That's the label that they would give to themselves. Who knows what that means to any person? Somebody could just kind of appreciate Jesus as a good moral teacher, say, I'm a Christian. Somebody else could have grown up in a Christian home. They don't really have an act of faith, but they'll say, I'm a Christian. Somebody else might actually be a Christ follower and say, I'm a Christian. So you have to actually look at what people believe to have any idea about how they're going to function in society and culture and how that will affect us. And that's where the research has come in to looking at beliefs directly to see, do people's beliefs line up with what is taught in the Bible? The basic things taught in the Bible, that God is sovereign, that absolute truth exists, that the devil is real, that heaven and hell are real, that Jesus is God, these kinds of questions. And when you do that, researchers have found that it's about 6% who have a biblical worldview. So you're absolutely right. There's this huge gap between 65% saying I'm a Christian, 6% who actually have a biblical worldview. It should leave us with little doubt as to why Christians are not making the greatest strides in influencing culture because the vast majority are influenced by culture. Mm. Well, I know in your book, Faithfully Different, uh, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture, you go into a lot of depth. You drill down really deeply into each of these uh, areas. Uh, The next one is thinking and um, moving from believing to thinking, how we're uh, processing what it is that we believe and how we're applying it to uh, the culture around us. What what are some major uh, aspects of uh, the culture that are you believe are really influencing the thinking of well people that hold a biblical worldview? Yeah, there there are a lot of different areas that I talk about in this, but a huge one is the whole area of morality and how do you define what is objectively good or bad, right or wrong. As Christians who want to have a biblical worldview, we should be defining that by God's objective standards, meaning it's not a matter of our preference. It's not a matter of our opinion. It's not what we like the best. It is simply what God says based on his nature. So for example, a lot of times today there's talk about about how Christian beliefs on certain moral issues, especially about sexuality, are harmful to people. And a lot of Christians are embracing this and they're feeling the weight of that and taking it in. And they're saying, well, I don't want to harm anyone, which is a natural response. Of course, we don't want to harm people, but we have to talk about what is the definition of harm. And ultimately, if you are going to go with God's word as objective truth, rather than your own feelings or anyone else's feelings, you have to define harm by God's objective standards, not by how people feel about those standards. And that's a huge distinction. It's a difficult one when everyone in culture is pointing fingers and saying your beliefs are harmful. It's very difficult to stick your neck out there and to speak truth and to say, well, here's what the Bible says. And I believe this to be God's actual word. And if he is the creator of the universe and the 
sustainer of all things. And this is his authoritative word for all times. And this is what he has said. I'm going to go with it because that would be the truth about reality, regardless of how I feel, regardless of how you feel, that's what I'm going with. And that's the difference between a biblical worldview and a secular one. In a secular one, they're going to go with how they feel. In a biblical worldview, we're going to say, I might feel differently, but I'm going with God, what God said. And it's interesting you put the um, uh, stress on feelings. Of course, uh, those of us that are that read really much at all can see the um, the importance of feelings in our culture. If I feel a certain way, well, then that's reality, at least for me. And uh, it kind of explains why you have some of the some of the chaos that you have. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in, in the book, I work through these four tenets of secularism throughout the, all the chapters where basically secularism comes down to this. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. In other words, no one has any kind of objective basis for having a confidence about who this God might be. If you want to believe there's a God out there, good on you, as long as you're not going to claim he's revealed anything specific about what we need to believe or who we are or how we need to relate to him, that's fine. But as soon as you get specific about this God, you say, no, he's actually revealed a lot. And this is what he has told us. That's when people aren't okay with it. So when you combine these things as a filter through which to view so much of what's in society, it suddenly makes so much sense. comes back to the authority of the self. And if the self is in charge, your feelings will be your guide. What else do you have to guide you? It's just you. And happiness, which is very subjective, that is going to be your goal. And you see that all the time. And judging, well, who are are you to tell me anything. You have no right to do that. You have no ability to do that because ultimately I'm the one in charge. So it becomes, I think, a very helpful screen for viewing these things to start to spot areas in culture that don't line up with a biblical worldview. In terms of the thinking uh, aspect of your book, Faithfully Different, uh, Natasha, you, you make it uh, clear that you studied uh, marketing, as I recall, in your, in your master's uh, of business uh, degree, and so you became quite familiar with the kinds of things that, that uh, can sell, can influence people. And I'm wondering uh, if you could talk about that, where we see secularism maybe selling itself and uh, particularly, I, I, you raise the issue of something called virtue signaling and, and its role in 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 trying to change people's uh, behavior. Right. So I talk about the fact that the morality of popular culture is actually being marketed to us. And I compare it to a well-known marketing model that researchers have used for over a hundred years, where if you're trying to get someone to make a purchase, so you're trying to get purchase buy-in, first they have to become aware of the product, then they have to become interested, then they have to desire to buy it, and then they buy it. And I compare that to a similar funnel that really people in the secular culture are using to market a moral buy-in today that starts with redefinition. So that's kind of the awareness level. How can we redefine the concepts that we want to make palatable to people? So you start to feel positive about it instead of negative. And then normalization is the next step. Now, not only have we redefined certain words like equality, diversity, inclusion, tolerance, not only have we redefined them to make you think differently about them, but now we're going to normalize and make you think about how these things are completely normal. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to worry 
about. If you ever felt guilty about these things in the past, don't do that. They're normal now. And then that leads to celebration, the final step. We've gone from redefinition to normalization to celebration. It very much parallels a marketing process, except you're just getting to a moral buy-in now. And, And I would add to that something really important. Ultimately, the reason that secularists have to do this. And this is th- this is just so important. If you hear anything I say, if you're a listener, hear this. The reason that secularists even need to go through this process is that they have no objective standard for their own morality. Because if you've thrown out God, then you have no objective standard outside of yourself for something being right or wrong, good or bad. The closest thing you can get to as a proxy of a moral standard is popular consensus. It's the closest thing you can get to where you're trying to get everybody on board to say, yes, this is a moral good. This view of sexuality or this view of abortion, this view of any of those things, this is a moral good now because we all agree on it. That's why they have to market morality toward you. My guest is Natasha Crange. She's a national speaker, author, blogger, and podcaster. And we're talking about her new book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. And again, there's so many aspects of what you're talking about here, uh, Natasha, but I need to move to the living aspect. And you talk about something which has become quite well known over the last couple of years, that of cancel culture. But what is the pressure of, of the secular culture and using cancel culture to cause us to be less inclined to live faithfully different, as you write about? Yeah, a lot of people today uh, think that cancel culture is just about celebrities, high-profile people who can get canceled off of their platforms. But the thing is, is that when we see that people are getting canceled for certain reasons, that people are just being, they're pulling away everything that they can from these people, and they are trying to ruin their livelihoods, really, it affects us as individuals. We don't want to speak out about anything, even in our own circles. And so that whole cancel culture mentality flows down from what we see in big stage into what we see in our own lives. And then we are reluctant to actually speak truth. So in in those chapters, I go into what it means to speak truth in today's culture and that we are called to speak truth as Christians, whether people try to cancel us or not, because the truth cannot be canceled. That's just the bottom line. The truth cannot be canceled. People can try to silence us, but there will always be more of God's people to speak up. We can either be one of them and we can obey our calling, or we can let cancel culture affect us and move more and more away from God's truth and from obedience to what he calls us to. So it's really important that Christians feel equipped really to be able to speak to the truth, that we know our Bibles, that we understand what the truth is, that we clearly have a biblical worldview so that we can be salt and light in culture. One aspect of, we're we're now into the living uh, part, but uh, I think you wrote about this in the thinking aspect, but it also applies here as well, that whole uh, area of discernment. You you say that discernment is so needed, it's always needed, but it's needed so much now uh, in in our current situation. Uh, Can you help us to see maybe where discernment, what it is, and then where it's most needed? Yeah, discernment is the ability to see what's right and wrong, to discern between truth and error. And that applies really, like you said, throughout the book. This is something, yes, I speak about it specifically in one chapter, but all these areas that we're talking about require discernment based on your understanding of the Bible and what God is saying. So ultimately in that chapter specifically, to give you one example, I talk about discernment as needed with the person of Jesus and who Jesus is, because there are so many false Jesuses that are running around in people's imaginations today. You know, people have a, a socialist idea of Jesus, that Jesus was a socialist because he fed the 5,000. And people think that that means that we need to, that Jesus would be a socialist if he were here today. Well, he didn't turn over all the resources 
resources to the governing officials at the time and say, hey, you redistribute this. That was a miracle. And he went and he gave the food out. But these are the kinds of misconceptions, mischaracterizations of Jesus that abound today. And if, again, if we're not in God's word, if we are not reading the Bible to understand who Jesus is, what he did, the purposes with which he came, we're going to get deluded by these kinds of characterizations. And they're absolutely everywhere now that we have social media and people love to make memes and and fancy quotes and all this stuff. So we have to be really cautious as Christians. Uh, back to uh, living, uh, living all of this out, living out, being faithfully different. You talked about um, speaking the truth, and obviously there's so many things that come into that, uh, when, uh, when to do it or how to do it uh, in, in terms of posting or not posting. I mean, any um, advice in how to go about sharing that truth that we know? Yeah, I have a whole chapter on that, but just to hit a couple of those points, I mean, the first question to ask yourself is, is this something we're speaking up about? So I'm not here to suggest that every time you detect an error in culture, you need to be up in arms, raising your hands and going crazy. I mean, you can't possibly deal with every single thing that comes along, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to choose wisely so that you stay healthy as an individual. And, And you always have to ask yourself that question. There's no filter that I can give to say, okay, here's exactly when, or here's when not to, we have to just be discerning in asking ourselves, is this something worth speaking up about? Another big question to ask is what's my motivation for speaking up right now? Is it because I want this person to hear truth because they're lost and this is harmful to them? It's harmful to others. Or is it because I want to win an argument? You know, those are two very different things in terms of, you know, why I'm going to choose to do this. It should always be for the glory of God, for the love of God and for the love of others. Um, And that's not to say that our motivations have to be pure as the driven snow either, because none of us are that perfect, but just to always check our hearts when we're looking at those questions. Um, One other thing to consider too is, you know, especially with social media, is this something that I should be discussing with someone I know privately Mm -hmm, maybe, mm -hmm. or is this something that is better in a public forum? Even though somebody posts something on social media, which theoretically invites you to comment publicly, if you're going into it with the motivation of actually having a good conversation with them, it might be better to just take that off of line. So there are a lot of different things we have to think about, and we're not here to just lob truth bombs every time we can, but rather to actually bring people to a knowledge of God. What would you say, and we're coming kind of toward the end of the conversation and toward the end of the book, but really important uh, points here, the main pressures on uh, believers to sharing that good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, but there's some real secular pressures that are come to bear, right? Sure. I think that a couple of the ones that I think are most important is that people view any kind of religious faith today as being founded on an ultimate guess. Like I said earlier, God's the ultimate guess. So if that's your view, that there's no evidence for the truth of any given religion, that there's no way anyone can know for sure, you're going to resent it if someone comes along and says, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Because that implies that you know something with some kind of certainty that they don't. Mm -hmm. And they're coming at this from the assumption that, well, no one can know. You know, that's fine if that works for you. You have your guess. I have mine. But why are you bothering to tell me this? I'm just on my way to the gym. So we have to understand that when we are trying to share 
the gospel with people, they're thinking there's no way that you can actually know what's true with any kind of certainty. And so sometimes we have to really try to frame our conversations around knowing how someone else is assuming things to be so we can be more effective in that. So that we can say, you know, there's actually a lot of evidence for the existence of God, for example, if you're talking with an atheist and be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have as first Peter three fifteen says, and that's your basic apologetics that we have to be equipped with. So I think just understanding some of those cultural misconceptions about the nature of religion and faith are, it, it's really important because because otherwise we're kind of preaching to people who don't even have the same framework for a discussion. What encouragement would you leave the listener with? What, uh, in, any thoughts or advice in uh, moving forward? So it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to have some righteous anger about the nature of things that, that are going on, but we also want to do something. And this is a God-given opportunity to stand up and be light where light is so desperately needed today. So in, instead of letting it just get us down or make us angry at the world and and go out raging, this is an opportunity to be the salt and light that we're called to be. If everybody was a Christian, then we, we wouldn't have a job to do, right? Yes. So we can actually actually live up to our calling. We have a great opportunity to do that. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Natasha Crane, author of Faithfully Different, regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Elisa Childers exposing a number of popular deceptions that don't fulfill their promises. The idea is that if you just love yourself more or do better self-care, or you know, read the right books, or get the right counseling, or join the right groups on Facebook, or put the right hashtags on Twitter, or whatever it might be, that you're gonna be more happy and fulfilled. But I think what we're seeing bear out is the exact opposite. The more focused on ourselves we are, the more anxious we are, the more um, exhausted we are. That's tomorrow at this same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.